if uh, today, your age now, you met the young Nelson Mandela who came to Johannesburg when he was 23, would you say that this was a man who was destined to become part of the struggle, that he would be a man who would make the struggle his life? I was being groomed for the position of chieftaincy. Mm -hmm. And uh, that I then ran away, you know, from a forced marriage, as I told you. That changed my whole career. I remember once walking with Mandela in the Transkei, and he told me that some of the landscape reminded him of Robben Island. He loved being able to see the sky and the horizon when he was growing up. He always saw himself as a country boy. He always called himself a country boy. And he did seem happiest, or at least less harried, when he was in the Transkei. When we started our interviews, Mandela was 74, and I was 37. Today, I'm 67, much closer to Mandela's age back then than my more youthful self. But if I had stayed at home, I would have uh, been a respected chief today, you know, and I would have had a big stomach and, you know, I had a lot of cattle and sheep. He was always proud that he didn't have a big stomach, that he was slim, and he would sometimes glance over to me and smile when we met a colleague of his who had become portly. Mandela had a young man working for him when we were working together who was a driver, a gopher, but he was also a university graduate who would help with research and speeches. He was quick-witted and funny and a little bit on the make, and his name was Tladi. In those early months, he was my guide to so many things within the ANC. When I had questions about Mandela's schedule or who he was seeing or whether or not he would do something, Tladi would laugh and say, he can do whatever he wants. He's a chief. In fact, Tladi called him my chief. Later, when I talked to the men who were with Mandela in prison, over and over they said to me, to understand Mandela, you had to understand that he was the son of a chief. This was a shorthand way of explaining him, the way he carried himself, his posture, his style, his manner, his sense of self, his confidence, his resilience, his sometimes imperiousness, why he wasn't scared of the white authorities. I heard this all the time, and I don't think I quite understood it. To me, as an American, the idea of tribes and clans and chiefs was unfamiliar. I thought at first, wasn't this the way South African whites looked at blacks? Wasn't this what the ANC was trying to get away from? And yes, in some ways, both are true. Mandela was an aristocrat, not only because of his royal roots, but also because of his elite Victorian education. But I wanted to try to understand how his royal background had shaped him. I visited the areas where Mandela grew up in the Transkei in the Eastern Cape. Mveso, Kunu, Mkwekwazeni. Wherever I went, I also met with the local chiefs. He asked me to do that. These places from Mandela's youth were all similar, mostly unpaved roads, not much electricity or indoor plumbing, not much vegetation, a few houses, but mostly rondavels, circular mud or cement huts with pointy thatched roofs. 
women walking great distances to fetch water and then carrying the containers back while gracefully balancing them on their heads. It wasn't so terribly different than when Mandela had grown up there in the 1920s and 30s. Over time, visiting these places, meeting traditional leaders, seeing Mandela with them, I began to understand how his royal background had molded him. I also saw how intrinsic it was to how he saw himself. I was being groomed for the position of chieftaincy. And why did your father have so much influence? Well, uh, I think uh, firstly it's because he was a chief. Mm -hmm. Secondly, he belonged to the Ikriba house, mm -hmm. which, uh, whose task was to settle disputes mm -hmm. in the family. Mm -hmm. That's a historical task of that house, settle dispute. And then he was an orator. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, do you resemble your father? Is he, does he physically... Your... They're tall. He was tall. He was tall. Mm -hmm. But he was darker than myself. Mm -hmm. His father was a counselor or advisor to the king. He was descended from the royal house that produced counselors. Mandela once told me that his father had a patch of white hair in front of his head and that as a boy, Mandela would take some ash and color his own hair in front. The first sentence of the memoir Mandela wrote when he was in prison goes like this. My father, Godla Henry Mandela, once a prosperous nobleman according to the standards of the time, died in 1930, having lost his chieftaincy and all the wealth and comforts attached to that office. Mandela's father was a grandson of King Ngubenkuka, which made Mandela the great-grandson of a 19th-century monarch. Mandela remembered an idyllic childhood. He loved the landscape. He loved stick-fighting with other boys. He even loved herding sheep. But he always felt privileged, special, chosen, not like the other boys. The Romans had an expression, names or destiny, and it might be true in Mandela's case. His given name was Hrolitlatla, which in Koza means pulling down the branches of a tree, but its true meaning is more specific, troublemaker. Oh, I wanted to, to uh, go back with one more thing. Your, your given name, your first name, uh, so I can't pronounce. What is that? Pulling the branch of the tree is the way yes. you... Yes. And then also, but colloquially, it's also known as a person who makes trouble or a troublemaker. Hmm. My Koza pronunciation then and now is not very good. Mandela was mostly bemused by it. The story of how he became Nelson, however, was less fateful than random. When he was around seven years old, Mandela's mother had converted to Methodism and enrolled him in a Methodist missionary school. On the first day of school, the teacher went around the room and gave all of the African students English names. They just, you see, automatically gave you a name, an English name when you went to school. Especially because to us, people who were, whose parents had never been to school, they knew no English name. Mm. So the teacher, when you arrived, they would say, well, your name is Nelson. So you are not given that name by your parents. Mm. There must have been one or two parents who had been to school who could give the, ch the children mm. English names. But uh, many of us, only heard of these names for the first time when the teacher said, you're so-and-so. 
Traditionally, the names boys were given were of British kings and lords and military heroes. George, William, James. Admiral Nelson, later First Viscount Nelson, was an officer during the Napoleonic Wars and was England's greatest naval hero. And no, and you never know whether the name uh, was any relation to Lord Nelson or something like that. Just, just Nelson. That's Nelson. Son of Nell. Hurley um, <laughs> Klatla, the branch puller, the troublemaker, the great grandson of a king, became Nelson Mandela. In all the time we were together, I never heard anyone call him Holy Klakla. Mandela's father was from what was known as the Kiba House of the Tembus, a member of the royal family who resolved disputes and weighed in on succession. Because of his royal background, Mandela's father had been selected by the white magistrate to be the headman of the local area. Being headman was a little like being the mayor, though you still had to defer to the local white magistrate. Not long after Mandela was born in 1918, his father was accused of accepting bribes in exchange for giving people land. He had a hearing and was stripped of his title and responsibilities. It was devastating and humiliating for Godla Mandela. So how, um, tell, I'd, I'd like to know more details about the story of how, how your father was deposed as chief. Because uh, all you say is that someone um, lodged a complaint against him. Can you tell me more about that? Yes. There was an ox which um, had stayed away from uh, its owner. Uh, And naturally, they would uh, bring it to the chiefs. And then uh, the paramount chief, now Chongilizwe, called my father. But uh, the way, you know, he called him... My father didn't regard it as being dignified, and he refused to go. So then Jongeliza went to the magistrate, and the magistrate called my father. He refused to go. So he was deposed because of insubordination. Hmm. And the story is that he said, Andizi and Dizikwale, I will not come, I am still putting on my sword. I see, yes, quiet. Yes. The way Mandela told the story in 1993 was that his father was being unfairly persecuted and that when he was summoned by the white magistrate, he refused to go. According to Mandela, when the magistrate summoned his father to appear, he replied with a koza saying, which is translated as, I am still putting on my sword. In Mandela's telling, the story was about his father's concern with honor and respect. This concern was passed on to his son. But recently, new scholarship shed light on what really happened. That scholarship suggests that Godla Mandela did in fact attend a hearing and presented a less than persuasive response on his own behalf. The white English judge was unconvinced and stripped him of his title and responsibilities. He was no longer the head man. He no longer had a job. It's important to remember that the court system in South Africa at the time excluded black judges and lawyers so it had no moral legitimacy. A traditional system of authority had been upended by a new colonial one in which legality had been redefined and African chiefs found themselves on the wrong end of the law. So whether Godla Mandela was guilty or innocent is a moot point. 
because the whole system was worthless. It's very possible that Mandela never knew the real story of what happened. His explanation is more of a projection of how he wanted his father to be. Godla was stripped of his chieftaincy, which was also the source of his income. His health wasn't good. Mandela and his mother moved from Mbeso, where his father had been the headman, to an even smaller village, Kunu. It was there, when Mandela was 12 years old, that his father died, probably of tuberculosis. And uh, I remember that night very well. Really? Tell me about that. No, he was uh, uh, lying on the floor, and uh, he had been sick for some time, coughing. I mean, he must have had some lung disease, mm -hmm. because he was coughing very badly. And then one night, my mother and my younger mother, the fourth wife, were there looking after him. He then uh, said uh, he called on the younger wife, who was not Daimani. He kept on calling, not Daimani, uh, give me my tobacco. You see? Mm -hmm. This noise was, this call was persistent. And eventually they gave him, they filled the pipe with tobacco, lit it and gave it to him. And he then smoked and he died smoking. That's how he died. Mm. Mm. And you were in the, were you in the, yes, right yes. there? Mm. I talked to Mandela a few times about his father, and he was always matter-of-fact about his father's death. As ever, I couldn't be sure if he was just covering any emotion or not feeling any at all. But he never expressed any emotion or even regret about his father like he did about his mother. For him, I think, his father's death was less an ending than the beginning of a whole new chapter for him. Sometime before he died... Mandela's father had arranged that the king of the Tembu raise Nelson in the event of his own death. The king had agreed. The regent lived in an area known as the Great Place, in a town called Mkwekwezeni. Mandela's mother packed up his things in a tin suitcase, and together they walked the six miles west to Mkwekwezeni. It was known as the Great Place because it was the royal seat of the Tembu tribe. For Mandela... Going to Mkwekwezeni was like going to Shangri-La, a kind of earthly paradise. It was grander than Kunu. To him, it seemed cosmopolitan, sophisticated. It was also a Methodist mission station and had a few concrete buildings with metal roofs, unlike Kunu. Even though the road was not paved, the king had a big American car. Mandela loved that car and sometimes washed it. He said goodbye to his mother, who returned to Kunu. In many ways, it was the last time she had any influence over her son. Now, Mandela was on his own, but his status had changed. He was the charge, in effect the adopted son of the king. He seemed to be fulfilling his royal destiny. The king there, did you see him every day? Oh, every day. Yes, every day. I was uh, his child, one of his children, and... Uh, Especially when I started going to the boarding school mm -hmm. and uh, the progress I was making was a sort of comfort to him. And uh, he had a lot of respect and many things see, which uh, he wanted to be done for him, which could be done by his children. He selected me, mm -hmm. you see. 
You know, I grew up, I've never felt that uh, I was not his child. Mm -hmm. Both uh, him and the queen. I never once felt that I was not their children. Mm -hmm. The way they respected me, you know, they, they loved me, you know. And uh, so much so that when I said I wanted to go to Kuno, they refused, you know, because they thought that uh, there I might be under a wrong influence mm. and I would then not want to come back. But in fact, it was just a question of missing my mother, you know. But they, saw, they were so attached to me that they didn't want me to leave. They just wanted me to be at home during holidays and go back to school, come back, you know. No, I always think of uh, the king uh, with fond memories. I never felt that I was not his child. I believe that, and I believe the king felt the same way. That's one reason the king did not want him to go back to Kunu. Kunu was the sticks, poor, backward, unsophisticated. At the great place, a whole new world opened for Mandela. While it was not grand by modern standards, it was a rich and magical realm to him. In addition to the car, the regent wore beautiful suits, had a regal posture, and commanded the loyalty of his people. Mandela shared a hut with the regent's son, Justice, who was four years older than Mandela and became his closest friend. Mandela was quiet, he observed how the regent carried himself, how he dressed, how he led his people. Sometimes he attended council meetings. He noticed that the regent would listen and nod as one person after another spoke. Only at the end would he rise to speak, and it was then to summarize what others had said and try to find some consensus. It was here that Mandela first learned of African history. Tembu and Koza heroes, who had fought for freedom in the previous century, during the century-long Koza Wars and Rebellion. He identified with them. The councillors came to try cases, settle disputes. Then uh, some days they would finish very early with trials and then uh, remain conversing. And I liked those moments because uh, you would gain a lot uh, and uh, I used to be amongst them uh, and listen to their stories. And of course, uh, they would send me to go and get fire for them, mm. to tell the women that they want tea, uh, that type of thing. Mm. And these were stories that were, had been passed down to them? And then yes, quite, yes. Mm. And that created a, uh, a feeling of pride? In oh, you. yes. Oh, yes. And uh, you felt that uh, these were people on whom you should mold your, your own life. The king's style influenced Mandela's own leadership. He learned about compromise. He learned the importance of listening. He loved those stories of the great African kings and heroes who lived and fought before the white man had come to South Africa. They influenced the leader he would eventually become. Although the ultimate authority in the Transkei were white British magistrates, Mandela grew up in a day-to-day -day world where racial oppression was in the background, not in his face. The white authorities were distant. This gave him confidence and a sense of himself. He told me the first time he ever shook hands with a white man was when he went off to boarding school 
at 17. The king himself, though, was anything but a rebel. He cooperated with the white British magistrates. He wrote letters of praise to the British king. That was the order of things, and he didn't question it. At the age of 16, Mandela participated in an age-old tembu ritual known as Ulwaluko. It was when a group of boys were lined up and then, one by one, were circumcised before the whole village. It was a coming-of-age ritual where boys became men. It was also required for any boy in the royal family or any boy who aspired to a leadership role. And Mandela was both. It was also a test of their fortitude. What do you say? You have two, there's two words that I come across of what you said when you're actually circumcised. The uh, Lord. What does that mean? I am a man. Oh. Yes. You mean now you're circumcised and you have become a man. Mandela describes this vividly in his prison memoir. He remembered every detail of the ritual and how it felt. Here's what he wrote. For seconds, I forgot about the refrain and tried instead to absorb the shock of the asagai by digging my head and shoulders into a grass wall. I recovered and just managed to repeat the formula, Ndiendoda. The other boys seemed much stronger and repeated the chorus promptly and clearly when each one's turn came around. Perhaps it's too melodramatic to say that Mandela was haunted by the fact that he did not respond as strongly and quickly as the other boys. But it's something he never forgot. I think he believed that courage was something you either had or didn't have. I believe from then on he thought that he was not naturally courageous, but that he must become so. That courage was something that could be acquired and developed, and that he would do so. And then they bind the wound with a type of leaf which has got little thorns, Mm -hmm. but it's a very good leaf. It has got healing properties. They tie it around your penis. Then they take you to the heart when everybody has been circumcised. Their heart, they they build a fire, but they make sure that that fire, there must be wet wood so that it should make smoke because there was a theory that smoke makes it uh, the wound heal quicker. So then at midnight, the attendant wakes you up one by one, says, go and bury this a distance away from here. And it was very dry. You dig and it's dark, you're alone. Mm. And uh, you dig and uh, bury it and then come back and then ask the next boy, to go and bury the foreskin. So it's symbolically you're burying your youth. Yeah, it's part. In his prison memoir, he recalls that when they had all healed, there was a celebration ceremony to welcome them to manhood. Mandela received two heifers and four sheep. But at the ceremony, a local chief spoke words that were far from celebratory. He never forgot them. He writes that the chief said... There sit our sons, all looking young, healthy, and handsome. We have circumcised them, but none will ever become a man because we are a conquered people and slaves in our own country. We have no land to give them where they could prosper and multiply as whites do. Among them are chiefs who will never rule because we have no power to govern, soldiers who will never fight for their own country because we have no weapons. 
At the time, he regarded the chief as mistaken and misguided. But in a few years, he came to understand the chief had it exactly right. Around 1937, when Mandela was 19 years old, the king sent him to a boarding school called Heeltown for high school. With its red roof, Victorian buildings, and green lawns, it could have been a British boarding school in Somerset. It was run by the Reverend Arthur Wellington, an aristocratic Englishman who told everyone he was descended from the great Lord Wellington, the conqueror of Napoleon. Wellington used to preside over school assemblies. There was the stage, and there was a door leading to the stage. And the only person who has ever used it, had ever used that door, was uh, the governor of the college, a Dr. Arthur Wellington, who used to post several occasions said to us, I am the descendant of the Duke of Wellington, who conquered Napoleon and saved civilization for Europe and for you, the natives. He used to say that and we used to clap. Later, the word native, you know, became unpopular with us and we insisted that we should be called Africans. But those days, uh, referring to us as natives, that uh, the Duke of Wellington had saved civilization for us as well, we would clap. <laughs> Now, he was the only person who would use that door. Mandela was amused by his reaction to Reverend Wellington while gently mocking the Reverend's pretension. But he understood that he was being trained to be a black Englishman. He learned to sing God Save the King and studied the history of British kings and queens. At Heeltown, his world broadened. He made his first friends who were not fellow Tembus he began to understand that there were issues that transcended his community. One day, a famous Khoza poet named Krune Mkwai came to visit his school. And that day was declared a holiday. Now, the teaching staff was composed of uh, black and white, all highly educated people. So we all assembled in the hall. But on this particular day, the emerged that came in, a black man, with a, a leopard blanket mm. and a leopard gear on his head and carrying two assegais. Assegais were slender spears used by traditional Koza warriors. Mkwai was dressed in a leopard skin karas, a one-shouldered cloak worn by African kings and chiefs. 25 years later, Mandela would wear the same kind of cloak at the opening of his 1962 trial. Now, that was something, you know, which we have never seen before. A black man, an African, using that door. Mandela was electrified by this. Now, there was a wire across the stage for the curtain. It was a, a man, a, a, what you call a, a, a manual, right. a curtain. You had to pull it to close it and uh, pull it aside to open it. He was then asked, Mkai was asked to address us. He was a medium height. His uh, eyes were sunken, you know, and uh, an unimpressive face. And then uh, he started. Now, he was carrying these two other guys. He then started speaking. 
very slowly looking for words as if struggling to get the correct word. He went on for some time in this fashion. And then as he was warming up, he started, you know, making gestures, uh, moving his asaka, swinging it. Mkwai paced back and forth across the stage, swinging his spear deep in thought, and then he inadvertently hit the curtain wire. Suddenly, everything changed. And in the course of swinging it, the asaka hit this wire. Mm. Now that transformed the whole situation. And for some time he commented on this incident. And the thrust of his remarks, which were well uh, formulated, this is not just an asagai hitting a string of wire. This is a clash between African and European culture. Mm. A clash between what is indigenous, which we value, and what is foreign, which we reject. Today, it's a clash which produces no results. It's a clash which produces a stalemate. But the days are coming when African culture will prevail upon foreign culture. Now, he was saying this in the presence of Dr. Wellington and uh, the white teachers whom we feared, you know? Even a half century later, Mandela's eyes widened when he told this story. This prophecy, uttered in front of whites whom he feared and respected, was amazing and thrilling to the young Mandela. An African man talking about the clash of cultures between black and white in front of prominent white men. The idea that what was indigenous was more valuable than what was foreign. Well, that was opposed to everything he had been taught until now. The entire system of racial oppression was based on the idea that European culture was superior to African culture. He would never forget it. When he graduated, Mandela enrolled at Fort Hare, the one and only university for black students in South Africa and the premier university for black students in the Southern Hemisphere. Black students from all over Africa came to study at Fort Hare. It was the first time he met young men his own age from elsewhere in Africa. For him, Fort Hare was the big leagues, where the elite of Africa came to study. This most exclusive and elite... Oh, yes, yes. I was proud of that. Because uh, we were told by our teachers, now you are at Fort Hare. You are going to be a leader of your people. This was what was being drowned upon us. And of course, those days, to have a degree as a black man was something very important. So I had this feeling. And of course, uh, the king was uh, very proud that uh, he had uh, a son, a member of the clan who was at Fort Hare. At Fort Hare, he took up boxing and cross-country running. He excelled at neither, but loved both. He began to lose his reserve and became more outgoing. His ambition was to be a civil servant for the Transkai government, or to be a translator for the Transkai legislature known as the Bunga, 
which his father had been a member of. He still saw himself as a black Englishman, a cog in the colonial universe, but his world began to widen. It was at Fort Hare that he first heard about the African National Congress. He wasn't very impressed. The ANC, the original black political party in South Africa, was ineffectual and disorganized in the late 1930s. It was also for the older black elite. Mandela didn't think very much about it. Fort Hare also presented Mandela with the first moral crisis of his life. It's an improbable story, but here goes. At the end of his first year, Mandela was part of a group of students who protested against bad food and the lack of power of the student council. This group urged a boycott of the elections for student council. It was pretty successful. When the headmaster of the school announced the election, only 25 of the 150 students voted. But Mandela was one of six students elected to the council by that 25. He promptly resigned in protest. I'm quite confused about what happened with you at Fort Hare in 1940 and the Students' Representatives Council, Uh where you ultimately left school. Can you explain that for me? Yes. We, at the end of the year 1940, we had to elect a Students' Representative Council. We decided to boycott the elections because we're protesting against the conditions at Fort Even though Mandela was elected as one of six members of the council, he felt that on principle he could not serve as he had boycotted the election and did not consider it legitimate. So I went to the chaps and I said, well, I cannot stand. The others, five, agreed to stand. Then, of course, that was trouble. Dr. K called me and he said, look, if you don't serve, then you won't come back to Forte next year. You must go and say, go back and serve. Mandela informed the headmaster, Dr. Kerr, that he would not serve. I went back and told the principal. And the principal told me, then you don't come back. So Mandela was kicked out of school for refusing to be part of a system he felt was illegitimate. The regent was furious about this and ordered him to apologize to the headmaster and beg to be reinstated. Mandela refused. He wouldn't budge. To me, Mandela's choice seemed extreme and self-sabotaging. When I asked him about it, he just shrugged. I think he had made so many more momentous decisions that this one just seemed very small and far away. But it was his whole world at the time. He seemed willing to throw away his future for what he regarded as a moral issue and not a particularly large one. How many people would do that? It also showed some characteristics that come up again and again. His stubbornness, his headstrongness, his penchant for action, even if it's detrimental to himself, and his willingness to do things that were sometimes not in his own interest in pursuit of a higher cause. In a very real way, The thing that would radicalize the young Mandela was his personal experience of the gigantic gap between the reality and the promise of what he had been taught about British notions of justice and fair play. He would confront this in a much more profound way very soon. Mandela never graduated, 
and went home to the trans guy. Not long after he returned home, when he was about 23 years old, the king came to him and Justice, the king's natural son, and said he was ill and wanted to make sure everything was settled with the family before he died. So he had arranged marriages for both Mandela and Justice. The regent had already paid Labola, the traditional bride price, to the families of the two girls. Both boys were upset about this. Mandela told me with a laugh that the girl he was assigned to marry was actually in love with Justice, and that he had his eye on someone else. He even went to the queen about it. I want to arrange things for you before I die. And uh, I tried very hard. And then I went to the queen, and I said, no, I want to marry. There was a girl who was a relative of the queen. I said, no, I want to marry that family as soon as I have finished studies. And the queen supported me. Yes, supported me. And um, it was a, a very attractive girl. But uh, the king said, no, no, no. You are going to get to marry, get married to this girl. And then he paid Lobola. That's how we ran. The king was adamant. The marriage was set. Mandela and Justice were so troubled by this turn of events and felt that they had exhausted all their options. They decided that the only thing they could do was to run away. Run away to the big city, Johannesburg, Egoli, the city of gold, where they would get jobs and get lost. For Mandela, being expelled from school was not enough to make him want to leave home, but an arranged marriage was. Getting to Johannesburg wasn't simple. There was no train from Mkwekwazeni, and it wasn't easy for two sons of the king to be anonymous. You hired a cart? Yes, we hired a local trader. Mm -hmm. Then uh, to hire the local trader, we had to sell two of his cattle Mm -hmm. to the trader. Mm -hmm. With that money, we then asked him to take us with uh, our clothing to the next nearest railway station for us to travel to Johannesburg. They stole two cattle from the king and gave them to a local trader in return for him taking them to the train station and transporting their things to Johannesburg. It was a risky and headstrong strategy, but they made it to Johannesburg. It was 1941. Joburg was booming. During World War II, black workers flocked to the city. The mines seemed to need an endless supply of black workers. Mandela managed to get a job at Crown Mines, one of the oldest and biggest gold mines in the city. And I really started as a watchman. And uh, a uniform and uh, a hat. What do you call it? Those old hats that used to be worn by soldiers in the old days. A hard hat. Uh, What did they call it? A helmet? Yeah, it's a helmet. And uh, with a whistle and a uniform and boots. Mandela was also given a knob carry, a traditional wooden club. He lived in one of the new townships, Alexandra, called the Dark City, six miles outside of Johannesburg. There was no electricity or running water. He often walked the six miles to work. But his career as a miner, which he later used to boast about, ended very quickly, when the regent had him fired and ordered him to return home. But he refused to return, So Mandela needed a new job, 
A cousin of Mandela's from home introduced him to Walter Sisulu, a stocky, light-skinned real estate broker who was also from the trans guy. But unknown to Mandela at the time was that Sisulu was one of the leaders of the nascent ANC Youth League. Sisulu was six years older than Mandela and immediately saw something in the young man. Walter Sisulu was 81 when I sat down with him in 1993 for the book. He was small and stooped over, but I could still see a twinkle in his eye and why his fellow prisoners on Robben Island called him Allah for his wisdom and calmness. He said something to me I will never forget. He said, we wanted to be a mass organization, and then a mass leader walked into my office. What was your first impression of him? He was quite, well, you were quite... Very, no, he was very um, um, impressive. The personality was quite apart from what his background was. Mm -hmm. He had a very striking personality. And uh, a young man who therefore inspired me. He talked about Mandela's broad shoulders, his good English, and that he did something naturally that politicians in those days rarely did. He smiled. He took Mandela to a white law firm where one of the partners, Lazar Sedelsky, took on Mandela as an article clerk. The arc of his life changed. Sedelsky would introduce him to the law. I also talked to Sedelsky before I talked to Walter, but unfortunately, I didn't record that. I told Walter that Sedelsky had told me that he had warned Mandela about Susulu. Well, Sedelsky says that, and Nelson says the same thing, that, that Sedelsky thought politics of any kind for a black man was a very dangerous thing. And he thought Nelson, the best thing Nelson could do was oh, just to become that's a lawyer. A lawyer that's and he said, Walter is involved in politics. He's going to get you in prison and all that sort of stuff. Oh, yes, yes. That's what he, that, was his, that was his reason. Yes. Mandela became a law clerk for Sedelsky's firm and also became the first ever black student at the University of Witzfatersrand Law School. While Mandela was studying there, Sisulu would introduce him to the African National Congress and recruit him for the budding Youth League. Did someone come to you and say, Nelson, was forming the Youth League, we'd like you to join? Yeah, well, um, we discussed the matter with Machombos and Komo and Walter together, mm-hmm. and um, Tambo, and decided, and, and Lebeta decided to form the Youth League. As you say, you were a little nervous, though, about this. Oh, yes, I mean, uh, politically, I was nervous, you see, when it came to speaking, you see, when it came to speaking, because these people knew much more than I did. I first, I made progress in committee meetings. Sisulu was the leader of a group of young men who were trying to transform the ANC from a sleepy, old-fashioned organization to one that was more aggressive in confronting racism and discrimination. They were more modern, bolder, and less intimidated by whites than the old leadership of the ANC. They saw that the colonial world was ending. They saw that civil rights were rising around the globe. On April 2, 1944, the week before Easter Sunday, at what was known as the Bantu Men's Social Center, the ANC Youth League was formed. It was a momentous occasion. On that day, Mandela was officially elected as a founding member of the ANC Youth League. It was not uh, such a big crowd as to fill the hall. 
but uh, it attracted people from Johannesburg and uh, from other places along the Rift uh, and then from Pretoria. The ANC Youth League was not a mass organization yet. Did you speak at the at that occasion? Do you remember? I can't remember. I don't think I spoke on that occasion. Mm-hmm. Were you sitting on the floor or were you sitting up on stage? No, no, no. I was sitting on the floor until I was elected. Mandela did not make a big impression right away. He saw many of the young men as brighter, more aggressive, more street smart than he was. One of them was Oliver Tambo, who would later become Mandela's closest friend and law partner. And uh, Oliver Tambo was elected secretary at that first meeting? Uh, yes. Right, so he must have been more involved at that stage than you were. Oliver Tambo was a clever chap, very mature, matured quite early. Now, he was more developed than I was. But Mandela did develop. The ANC supported him, nourished him, taught him, built him up. To say, be objective. And I know if you are objective, you are going to support the ANC. Mandela came to love the African National Congress. It was the central relationship in his life. You want yes, the ANC to be first among everybody. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. When Mandela talked about the ANC, he did so with loyalty and reverence. From the time he joined in 1944 until he died in 2013, it was the single abiding thread of his entire life. When he would say after he was released, I'm a proud and loyal member of the ANC, that wasn't just lip service. He really meant it. I think he loved the ANC more than any other thing or person in his life. 